I invite you guys to take your Bibles. Turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text today. We're going to look together at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is God's holy word for us today. Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is God's holy word for us. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we do ask and pray that you would bless now not only the reading of your word, but now especially the preaching of your holy word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, that we might be instructed by your wisdom. Write your truth upon our hearts. Help us to receive it with joy and to go from this place with eagerness to believe and obey all that you've revealed. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a divided world. Human beings have always been divided throughout our history. There is no golden age of the human race where all were united as one, with maybe one exception, the Tower of Babel. And that isn't exactly a good story in Genesis. There's also never been a golden age in our country. In our world, in the West in general, and in the United States in particular, we see and we feel the divisions all around us. Numerous examples could be given. We are divided deeply strongly divided over should we roll the toilet paper off the top or from the bottom? Over the top, amen. <laughs> At least some of the elect are among us this morning. We are divided over all sorts of issues like which is better, Seinfeld or Friends? And the answer is friends. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Friends and over the top toilet paper are the correct answers. 
And many of you disagree. Some of you strenuously disagree. You see, we're just so bitterly divided. This whole room could be separated by all these issues. Not only are we divided over simple, silly, fun things, but are we not divided in deep and sometimes bitter, devastating ways? You know, it helps to remember that this country has always been divided over a myriad of different issues and events from its very beginning. I mean, the whole country began with a division from a government. That was a divisive period, the revolution. The period of the American Civil War, that was a bitter and divided and divisive time and all of the complex constitutional and social issues that went into that conflict. More recently, the Vietnam War was a very divided time. But not just war, which is sort of an easy example, but every imaginable issue in America divides us today into camps, tribes, factions, and enemies. Today, it feels to many of us that we are more divided than ever as we watch the country we love from whatever political or social perspective you might find yourself standing today, as we watch the country that we love dissected across political, social, cultural, economic, legal, medical, and international lines. Yes, we have always been divided in these ways. It is not brand new today. But I believe we could say in fairness that some periods are worse than others. And many in this country, perhaps many in this room, feel that right now is one of the most or one of the worst times of division in recent memory. The sad and difficult reality is that the church in America is divided just as severely. What happens is, people on all sides of every conceivable aisle that divides, people on all sides of the aisle spend six days a week fighting mad about all those people who are ruining our country. We spend six days a week fussing and fuming and fighting and fretting over all these divisive issues, reassured, of course, by our preferred talking heads about how right we are and how wrong and evil they are. And then we bring all those divisions with us to church on Sunday. We bring all our own divisions with us into the church and into our lives together as Christians, and the result is inevitable. The church looks and feels and sounds just like the world. And we divide just like the world and along the exact same lines as the world we line up on the different sides that the world tells us we should be lined up on. 
And then the world looks at us, Christians, and sees a church made in the world's own image. This is why, in our context, the political right and the political left so neatly and so easily map onto an evangelical or liberal denomination. The political spectrum and the Christian spectrum are almost identical. And that's because we have brought a lot of the world into the church with us. Rather than being a counterculture, we just reflect the culture around us. In a divided world, the church looks like little more than the religious wing of the different social and political platforms fighting for civil and cultural power over the future of our nation. Rather than being a blessing in a divided world, the church is often part of the problem, adding a religious dimension to the worldly divisions that already exist. Of course, I hasten to add to this, there is a place for disagreement, for debate, and for dialogue. Of course. There is absolutely a time to stand up for what is right, to resist evil. Yes, unquestionably. There is a time to participate in the civil and political institutions and discussions taking place around us, and to do so with principles, and to do so with convictions, and to stand on those. Yes, there is everything right about doing those things. But how often do these things, right as they are in their proper time and place, how often do they eclipse the central mission and message of the church? Friends, Saving America from whatever you think the enemies of America are, saving America is not the Great Commission. I believe patriotism is biblical, but patriotism is not part of the gospel. The church ought to be a place of solace from the world. But how often we bring the world with us to church. You know, I was listening to a video of... A British, a British scholar who is not currently a Christian, I don't believe, but is closer to becoming a Christian than he ever has been in recent years. And this British scholar was talking about the issue of Brexit. Everybody remember that issue, Brexit. Should, should, the, uh, should England or the UK, should it remove itself from the EU? And so this guy was talking about it in that context, and he says, look, six days a week I hear every political pundit from this and that perspective talk about Brexit. I don't come to church because I want to hear what the priest or the bishop has to say about politics. I hear that six days a week. I come to church to hear the weird stuff. <laughs> now, he's not a Christian yet. But he says, I come to church to hear the weird stuff about God and heaven and hell and the gospel and 
Satan's influence on the world and sin and redemption and the cross. It is like, and I don't even necessarily believe in all that stuff, but that's what I come to church to hear, the weird stuff that's in the Bible. I hear the political stuff all the time. I want to get away from that and get in here and hear what the church has to say. I want a different voice than the one I'm used to the other six days. Where I can maybe hear something from God through whoever his minister happens to be that week in that church I go to. Give me the weird stuff, the Bible stuff. Doesn't the church have its own message? And the answer is yes, we do. We do have our own message, but it gets drowned out by the message that the world is telling us we should be relaying on Sunday mornings. There's a tension. It's difficult to navigate how to speak to certain issues and to still be a countercultural, unique voice as a church. I don't pretend that it's easy. But the church ought to be a place of solace from the world where we hear a different voice, God's voice, speaking into all the other voices. We suffer in the church. We suffer from a plague of disunity in the church, and we have for generations. In our passage this morning, Paul is concerned about the unity of the church he planted in Philippi in ancient Greece. You know, Philippi is a lot like any other modern American city today. Philippi experienced its own divisions in their own context as Roman citizens living in a Roman colony on foreign soil, Greek soil, not in Italy. And they had to navigate all the challenging mixture of Greek culture mixed with Roman society, Greek ways of doing things with Roman law and order and imperial dominance. That could be volatile. That could be disunifying. That could be tricky. That could be explosive. That could be dangerous for the church. Paul knew these things. The Christians in Philippi felt acutely the pressures to divide along the same lines as the various Greek and Roman and foreign groups and factions bustled and bristled with one another over superiority in the city. How easy it would have been for the Philippian Christians to look indistinguishable from the Greeks and Romans and others all around them, to give in and to divide over all these various issues swirling around the ancient city. We know some of these divisions were happening. We don't know all the details, but we know that Philippi was struggling with some of these things. For Paul says towards the end of his letter in chapter 4, he speaks to two women in the church who have caused some big division because they can't agree on something. And he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord to stop this division Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Help them. Reconcile them. There's division in the church. 
and that needs to be reconciled. And in the larger culture, we see Paul alluding to these divisions in chapter 3 and verse 17 where he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Watch the right people. Follow the right people. Imitate the right people, the people who are teaching like Paul. And he says in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, not Rome, not Philippi. Yes, we're citizens of an earthly city, but we belong to heaven. We are citizens of heaven first, and from there we await a Savior. Not the emperor in Rome, who was also called the Savior, but we await the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules us from His heavenly headquarters at the right hand of the Father, not in Rome. There was pressure to succumb to these divisions. And he says, you got to stop watching the world and start watching those who are truly following Christ and beware of these things. Paul seeks to shepherd them out of these pressures by telling them how to stand out from their culture by cultivating unity and being a blessing to their city. And that's what I want us to spend a few moments looking at. Not in, not in depth and in detail, but just highlight some things that Paul has for us that we can put into practice in our own context. It's what I want us to look at this morning, and I want this to come as a pastoral challenge for me and for you, for us together in our divided world. I want us to see how to cultivate unity, and I want us to see the blessing of unity. So first, how to cultivate unity. We're just going to highlight some things. This is what Paul says in the first five verses. He gives us the roadmap to unity, how to cultivate it. The first thing Paul wants us to do here is he wants us to cultivate a climate where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. Cultivate a climate where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. Look at verse 1. He says, all right, look, if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation, sharing in, fellowship in the Holy Spirit, any partnership in the Spirit... If there is any affection and sympathy, he says, complete my joy. Complete my joy by being unified. In other words, everything he just said in verse 1 is the soil and the climate out of which church unity and Christian unity grows. And when he says participation in the Spirit, to me, my mind races over to Galatians chapter 5, where he says, and in chapter 6, where Paul says we should be sowing into the Spirit, not sowing into the flesh. It's this harvesting, it's this sowing and reaping crops and harvest image that he's using in Galatians. And this makes me think of, of that passage. 
to where this is the soil out of which church unity and Christian unity grows. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We want to sow into the Spirit so that we can have that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit. And what does that look like in the passage specifically? It looks like encouragement in Christ. That is, we encourage one another in Christ as fellow Christians with the things of Christ. We encourage each other with the things of Christ. We comfort one another with the love of God and the love of Christ. We want to have a a cultivate a climate, a feeling, a mood, an atmosphere where encouragement is the nutrients in the soil, where comfort and love are felt and known and tangible, where we are fellowshipping in the Spirit, growing the fruit of the Spirit among one another, where we have affection and we have sympathy. For one another. One of the best things to heal division is sympathy for the person you disagree with. If there's any of this stuff, Paul says, then complete my joy by being united. This is the climate where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. A climate in a church, a local church, not just that church out there or down the street, but in this place a place of cultivating encouragement, cultivating comfort, cultivating love, cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, cultivating affection and sympathy for one another. That's step one. How do you cultivate unity? Number one, you cultivate a climate where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. Number two, cultivate commitment to a common cause. We have to cultivate commitment to a common cause. Verse two says... Complete my joy, if these other things are true from verse 1, then therefore complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now Paul isn't here saying that if you want to have unity, you're never allowed to have a different opinion about anything. You can never disagree with the person next to you or the person that you're a fellow believer with here at the Forks. You can't have any disagreements. You've got to think the same, be the same, do the same, look the same, dress the same. And he's not saying that. We know he's not saying that because in other places, in other letters, he talks about how do you, how do you handle and respect each other's differences of opinion. We call those Romans 14 issues because in Romans 14, he's dealing with a discussion about about how Christians observe different days. And he says, look, the, you should be, each one should be convinced in his own mind, and you shouldn't judge the Lord's servant because he's not your servant. And so he protects the ability to have good faith disagreements. So what's he mean then when he says that you need to have the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord? He doesn't mean that we should all pile into a Honda, like an accord. Thanks, Matt. He doesn't mean, right? He means we should all be cultivating together commitment to a common cause. Our minds and our hearts and our motivations and our mission ought to be unified around a common core of Christian truth, a common commitment. And what is that commitment? Paul leaves no doubt in the letter to the Philippians in chapter 1. 
He says this beginning in verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in the way the gospel deserves you to live. Live the way the gospel deserves. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to be linked and yoked together, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, everybody pulling in the same direction. And what is that direction determined by? The gospel. The truth of Christ. The gospel of Christ. In chapter 2, verse 16, he calls it holding fast to the word of life. That's what we have to do. We have to get on board with the central matters of the faith. As important as other things are, we need to hold them in a sense of proportion and keep the main thing the main thing, as the saying goes. We have to keep the gospel and the things of Christ front and center in our mission, ministry, and message And that means cultivating among us a commitment to a common cause that trumps all the other causes that we are committed to. So that everything else we're committed to the other six days of the week are brought into subordination and into alignment with our commitment to Christ. And letting our commitment to Christ cut across the divisions and the lines lines that divide us in other ways which can bring unity, where I can say, you and I disagree about this, 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 and this, and we deeply disagree, and I think what you think is dangerous, and you think what I think is dangerous, and we have all sorts of differences. But guess what? Somehow, in spite of the fact that we believe totally different things the other six days of the week, we are united on the gospel and who Jesus is, and we're both fully Christians in good faith, and that means we can have unity. Now, that doesn't make it simple, And does it mean that the other things that divide us aren't important? Those things have to be dealt with, and it can be very, very difficult. I'm not pretending that it's easy. But a a commitment to a common cause that is our ultimate concern, our greatest commitment, can bring unity. Cultivate a climate where the Spirit, where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. Second, cultivate commitment to a common cause. Next, I would say this from verse, verses 3 and 4. We have to cultivate a central concern for others above self. Cultivate a central concern for others above self. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing. Nothing. Not one thing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But... Instead of that, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. One of the best things that can bring healing to division, that can build reconciliation, that can bring unity, is that we count even those we disagree with as more significant than us. That we see ourselves in a humble posture towards even our enemies and even those who disagree with us. 
even over deeply important divisions. To still make verse 3 part of your approach, your personal ethic, and the way you come at your opponents. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Have no conceits about yourself and the glory and rightness of your own cause. Understand that even the best of causes is corrupted by sin somewhere down the line. And in humility, esteem other people as more significant than yourselves. Not esteem yourself as worthless and insignificant and only others matter. No. Jesus, quoting Leviticus, says to love your neighbor, not full stop, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Which means self-love is part of the measure of loving a neighbor. It doesn't mean you don't love yourself. It doesn't mean you think you're insignificant. It just means that you have a concern, a central concern for other people. And whenever you make another person, even an enemy, a matter of someone that you try to have sympathy for and count as more significant than yourself, that is a great bridge to unity. And here especially I'm talking about in the church with your fellow believer in the church specifically with your fellow believer. That's what we're talking about, unity in the church. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we as fellow Christians can cultivate a central overriding concern for other people before self, and we see ourselves as their servants as someone who lives with them and loves them and prays for them and wants to, wants to see them flourish and do good for them, it makes it very hard when all your prayers for that person that you disagree with so sharply, when all your prayers are just for blessing and for flourishing. Lord, help their finances, help their career, help their family, help them in their relationships, help them in their walk with you. And you're just doing nothing but releasing blessing in your thoughts and prayers about that person. It gets very hard to say, oh, what an evil person they are because they believe this different than me. It gets very hard to do that when you cultivate this central concern for the good and blessing of others. Last thing I'll say about this, about how to cultivate unity. We want to cultivate a climate where the fruit of the Spirit can grow. We want to cultivate a common um, uh, commitment to a common cause. We want to cultivate a central concern for others. And the last thing Paul says here in verse 5 is, we want to cultivate conformity to the example of Christ. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, imitate Christ. Watch Jesus do this perfectly. You go be like him and draw from his source from His strength and His power as a resource that enables you to do the same. Following Christ, being conformed into the image of Christ, growing in Christ-likeness. Jesus had real disagreements with a lot of people. And He wasn't afraid to call out sin, and He wasn't afraid to warn people of danger. I mean, Jesus did this perfectly. So it's, and it's not simplistic. It's a complex example and that's why you got to know Christ. We're Christians after all. We need to know Jesus and know him well and to know his will and his ways well. And to do that, we got to be we got to be neck deep in the gospels. 
We've just got to be in the Gospels, watching Jesus do this, teach us how to do it, and learn from his example. And be in the, the rest of the Scriptures where Paul points us to Christ and tells us how Jesus did this. The next part of chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which is this magnificent section about the glory of Jesus, how he humbled himself to the point of death and was highly exalted to God's right hand, that whole thing that we debate about, like in terms of our Christology, our doctrine of Jesus, that whole thing is just a sermon illustration to get us to put other people first. (laughs) It's Paul's sermon illustration for what humility looks like. We make it about a lot of stuff, but it's about humility, learning the humility of Christ and cultivating that in ourselves. We do these things, we will cultivate unity in the body of Christ and as a church. When the church cultivates these four things that Paul lays out, we will experience the divine gift of unity. And it certainly is a divine gift Make no mistake. Paul says this in chapter 2 later on. He says in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Live out. Work it out. Put it into practice in your own life. And then he says, verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So how do we cultivate these things? God has to do them in us. That doesn't mean we become passive and just coast. Oh, God will do it. And if he doesn't, oh well. And just sit on the couch and wait for the humility to come. (laughs) But to be striving for these things in prayer. In prayer, if it is a divine gift, then unity is something we must not only strive for, but also pray for. And that's what Jesus did in John 17 that we read earlier. Just, just for paragraph after paragraph, Father, make them one. Unify them. I'm praying for them that they would be unified and united. Don't let the evil ones scatter them like the world. Make them one like we're one. Unify my followers. It's something that only God can do, and that means we have to pray for it, but it's something that actually involves our participation, and so we also have to be engaged in it and strive for it. It's not one or the other, it's both. Us fully engaged, cultivating this unity, and then praying for God to do what only He can do through us, through our efforts. And when the church lives this kind of unity and lives in and lives out this kind of unity, it brings tremendous blessing to everyone involved. It brings blessing to ourselves, it brings blessing to others, and it brings blessing to the world. Let me just say a word about each of these. The blessing of unity to ourselves. The blessing of being in an encouraging church. I want you to just think about what a blessing it is to be in in, an encouraging church. Not an angry, critical, negative, depressing, backbiting, complaining, bickering, divided, cold 
spiritually cold church. What a depressing place to be in a church like that. That's not what we should be. We should be a church that is full to overflowing with encouragement. When I played basketball in high school, the best coaches that I had when I was just a mess and didn't know the plays and was, did something stupid on the court and needed a lot of practice, the best coaches I had pulled me aside and said, you do this, this, and this so well. Let's keep working on this, this, and this where you're still struggling. And I'm going to put you with this teammate who's very good at those couple of things, and we are going to work, and we're going to grow, and we're going to build up you in those areas. Okay? You can get better. You can learn these plays, Wesley, and you can be a much better player than you are. You already do this really well. Man, if we just focus on this, imagine the kind of player you would be. And I just wanted to weep because it was so encouraging to let me know I could do it. The worst coaches I ever had were the ones who pulled me aside and cussed me like a dog and said, you are so stupid. That was a horrible play. Goodness, sit on the bench, you... And then blankety blank. Now, I had coaches like that. Now, some players, you watch an NFL game, and some coaches are out there dogging out players because they know that player responds to that. He wants to be treated like an animal in a cage and get whipped and beat. And then he's like, man, that's the motivation I need. Yes, that's right. Tell me off harder. That's going to make me play harder. Some people are like that. Man, I'm not like that. And most Christians aren't like that. You want me to pull you aside and say, man, you're a horrible Christian. Just look how terrible you are at prayer. You never read your Bible. You, all, you almost never come to church. Golly. Is that what you want somebody to do is just rip you apart? No, you don't want that. You want someone to take you, take you aside and say, man, you are so good at this, this, and this. Jesus is doing this in your life, and I can see it. Man, that's encouraging. Let's work on these other things that maybe you haven't gotten great at yet because you're still growing just like me. And what you're good at, I'm not good at. And we can work together and pray together and give each other the gospel and give each other the assurance that, man, we're not just a, a piece of trash who's horrible at being a Christian. I, I convince myself I'm that bad by myself. I don't need your help. <laughs> we sing hymns that call me bad things like that, right? As part of our praise songs, all right? Our hymns call us worms and, <laughs> and all kinds of stuff because we're reformed, <laughs> right? <laughs> but you know what those hymns do? They give us the gospel and they tell us, man, you can go higher you can soar higher. And man, if we just had a church that was just, we just loved each other so much and we were just nothing but committed to encouraging each other. We've, we all know how easy it is to complain and to criticize each other. You know why we know that? Because we've all done it. And I'm pointing at me too. I know how to criticize a church. I went to church one time when I was, when I was in, I guess, high school or college. I was, uh, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I remember going to church and I was so unhappy with the way my preacher preached. I just didn't like his style. 
but it was my home church. So I went to Sunday one time, and I had, I had my notes with me, and I had a pen. And man, my goal was to just write down everything wrong he did in that sermon. It was just, that's, that was all I was looking for was that was poorly worded, and that was off topic, and God, he already said that six times, and, and just, boy, that illustration fell flat, and who, no one likes this guy. And that's how I, that's how I went to church that day. And I just went home and just felt so justified that, man, I'm never going to be a bad preacher like that. And, man, the Lord just knocked me over with that, just how wrong that was. Boy, that was just disgusting to treat him like that. He didn't deserve that. None of you deserve that either, to have each other look at you and say, oh, man, they're just, they don't do this well, and this church stinks at this, and that person's bad at that. we got to get that junk out of here, guys. I'm not saying you're all doing it, and I'm not saying that we're a horrible place to be, and I'm not saying that anybody's being bad to me. I'm just saying that all of us know how easy it is to be like that. All of us have been like that at some point, and it's got to stop. We are going to be a church in 2024 that has never been more encouraging in our lives. And that's my only prayer for you, and it's my only prayer for me. God, let us just be so encouraging to each other and pick each other up and rise higher. That's the church I want to lead. That's the church I want to worship in. That's the church I want to serve in. It's the church I want to be in with you. I want to do it with you guys, each of you, individually, right where you are. What a blessing to be an in an encouraging church. A church that is united in a... A church united is like this spiritual greenhouse where Christian growth can flourish. Where we can just feel ourselves growing and not giving in to the easy, easy path of negativity and criticism and complaint. Especially if it's stuff that happened, you know, a hundred years ago. Who cares? I just, I don't care. I don't care. We need to be a place that's full of encouraging because that's going to be a blessing to you. You will be happier in this church if we commit to this. We'll be a blessing to ourselves, but we'll also be a blessing to others who come to our church. The blessing of being an encouraging church, but also the blessing of being an inviting church, an inviting church. We grow the fruit of the Spirit so that we can share the harvest with others, not so we can enjoy the crop and keep it to ourselves. We want to be a warm, welcoming, united, healthy church that is growing spiritually. And if we'll do that and pray for it and strive towards it, we will be in a place to grow numerically as well. There's no guarantee that every pew is going to be full. God never promised that to anybody. Some churches are big and overflowing, and some churches stay small. That's up to God. That's up to God. But we'll be in a place to where if we do have new people come, and some new people are here and are coming, and we're so glad you are. But as, as we pray for more and more people to come, maybe younger families with kids for this new children's ministry we're trying to launch, wouldn't that be great? We want to have a warm, inviting, welcoming place for them to come and call home. But if our climate is cold and critical and negative, let me tell you something. People can tell 
when they walk in a building, what kind of spiritual climate they're in. I've visited churches where it was like, man, I needed to wear an extra jacket. It's just so spiritually cold in this place. Oof, you know? And I've been to some places where I was just like, oh, man, the, the sun is shining bright in this place. What a warm place to be. When me and Sarah first moved here, what a warm welcome we had. And what a delight it's been for you guys to welcome us into your lives and welcome us into your church and into your community. Man, it's just really been a blessing. And people keep asking me, man, uh, any red flags yet? Any problems? And, and you know what? Of course, there's like this little problem and that little problem. Everybody's got little problems, okay? Any red flags? No. I can tell you today, no. We haven't had any, any red flags that said, man, this place is, we got to get out of here. Praise God for that. And thank you for that. What a blessing it is to others to have a church of encouragement, of love, centered on the gospel to welcome people into. Last thing I'll say this morning. A united church is a blessing to ourselves, it's a blessing to others, and it's a blessing to the world. The blessing of being in an encouraging church, an inviting church, but last, a witnessing church. Paul says in chapter 2, later on, that when Christians are united like this, that he says, we will shine as lights in the world in a dark and crooked and twisted generation. We will shine like lights in the world. We will stand out so starkly from the world if we focus on unity in the face of all the divisions inside and outside the church. We preach the gospel of reconciliation, a gospel that heals divisions. We preach a gospel about bringing other people together. We will bear witness. If we are a unified church, we'll preach a reconciling gospel that heals divisions. We will bear witness, and we will challenge the world's values. We will challenge their causes. We will challenge their commitments when we transcend all of their dividing lines and unite as fellow Christians. Paul says a united church is like stars in the sky, in the night sky. We will be in the world, those fixed points of light in a dark world, letting our light shine as we help the world navigate its way to the Savior. But if we look just like the world, how will the world see its way to Jesus, who's the only hope of the world? So my pastoral challenge to you this morning is this. Be a thermostat to the world, not a thermometer. You know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? Thermometers just respond, right? When it's warm, the little line goes up. When it's cold, the little line goes down. And if we are simply being receptive thermometers to the world... That whatever the world thinks is important, whoop, whatever the world thinks is unimportant, whoop, we will just rise and fall with the tide of the world. And whatever, their, whatever the world's climate is, we will just respond to it and we'll just reflect the world. We'll just be a little thermometer, look just like the world. But a thermostat, it tells the room what temperature it's going to be. It doesn't respond to the room. It dictates the climate in the room. And in this church, I want you to be a thermostat, not a thermometer.
simply responding to the world and bringing all that in here. If we want to have a climate of encouragement, a warm spiritual climate, we have to be those thermostats that tell the the temperature in the room to get hot and to get warm and to stay warm. That's where we have to cultivate these things. How do you raise the temperature spiritually in the room? You do it with encouragement, sympathy, patience, love, the character of Jesus, humility, the gospel. That's where you do it. And when the negativity comes, and oh, it will, it'll come up in my own head, it'll come up in yours. It'll start to come out of my mouth, it'll start to come out of yours. It'll start to boil up in your heart, it'll start to boil up in mine. When we hear the criticism, when we hear the negativity, when we hear the junk, when we feel the divisions, what are we going to do? We're going to raise the spiritual temperature and we're going to do it by out-rejoicing the negativity. Out-rejoice them. You hear some little gossip or some criticism, whether it's me or anybody else, out-rejoice them. More joy in your heart, more love, more encouragement. And whoever's being critical, you don't be critical back, you encourage. You just out-rejoice them, out-love them, and you encourage. Let that be your goal in 2024, as it is mine. I want to have a year where I've never encouraged people more. Just be real with each other. I want to have a year where I've never loved people better. I've never loved you better. I've never encouraged you more. And I've never been more involved and invested in your lives. I'm, I'm, I might be a little slow. It's my first church I've ever pastored. But guys, we're going to get there. And we're going to do it together. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to love each other. This is going to be the most spiritually vibrant church that it's been in, in ages. No shade on anybody else before me, but we're going places, and I want you to come with me. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for the ingredients for joy. Thank you for the inspiration of the word that tells us how to encourage each other, that tells us how to be a unified church, tells us how to overcome division, tells us how to overcome the world that presses in on us and makes us want to divide along all kinds of lines. Heal those divisions. Help us to navigate the the tensions and the difficulties of holding our convictions, but also being Christians who love each other and put each other first. We don't always know how to do that. Sometimes we do it so poorly. But Lord, encourage us where we're weak. Strengthen us in those places we need to grow. Protect us in those places where we're already strong and help us all to rise higher and higher and higher and make this place more spiritually warm, vibrant, and alive, out-rejoicing the divisions, out-rejoicing the negativity, out-rejoicing the criticism, and overcoming with encouragement and love that comes from Christ, bearing the fruit of the Spirit and sharing that glorious fruit of the Spirit with each other as we grow together and we welcome new people in and we bear witness to the world of what unity in the church looks like and we speak your countercultural word in the face of all the other voices that call us to their cause. Help us to overcome 
Take us into that next future, that future you have for us, that next phase. Show us how to get there. Protect us from the evil one. Guard us from temptation. Knit us together. Make us your people the way you've called us to be. And we will give you all the glory. And we'll do it in Jesus' name. Amen.